Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Southern and today on The Culture Bar we are delighted to be joined by Jamie Stone MP. Jamie is a Scottish Liberal Democrat politician here in the UK. He has been a local councillor, a member of the Scottish Parliament and from 2017 the MP for Caithness, Sutherland and Easter Ross. Jamie is the Liberal Democrat spokesperson for Defence, together with digital, culture, media and sport. What's more, he's a keen gardener and an expert on edible fungi, and I gather he's been known to play a pantomime dame, so we hope to find out more about that later. Jamie, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely to join you. Thank you very much. Well, it seems like you're a bit of a polymath. I didn't even mention that you're from a family of cheesemakers as well. <laughs> well, yes, I am, actually. Um, it, yeah, my mum and dad, they had a tiny little dairy farm and then they started to make cheese, which was actually made more money than selling the milk. In fact, they were gradually going broke because we were such a small farm, but it kind of, you know, it saved the family. My brother, my little brother now is, is a cheesemaker. Oh, so excellent. He keeps me supplied if he's feeling generous with a little bit of cheddar down again. So there <laughs> I'm very envious. I'd love to have a, a sibling as a cheesemaker. Um, so we want to tackle some quite big topics today. Um, right. Brexit, COVID, climate change, diversity, inclusion, culture wars, you name it. And if it's all right, we're just going to dive straight in. Um, so what is perhaps the most pertinent issue in the arts at the moment in the UK is, is Brexit. And the Liberal Democrats, of course, have a very consistent message on this, one of the few parties that have really, about maintaining a close relationship with the EU. And it appeared in the media last week that the UK government supposedly rejected an offer from the EU to allow musicians to travel without work permits. DCMS have come back quite strongly to, to rebut that and said actually it was vice versa. So lots of he said, she said. Do you know actually what happened and what's going on to, ho to hopefully resolve this? Well, I don't know what happened. And I know that there's, there's a blame buck being passed backwards and forwards. And yes, we, we have to get to the bottom of this one day. But what do we know for sure? We know that right now that musicians face huge difficulties uh, getting to perform in Europe. That's a fact, okay? Why? Well, we'll come to that, but we are where we are with this and it's not good. And I'll tell you why it's not good, because um, firstly, the arts uh, performing abroad and let's broaden it up beyond music, into theatre, into all sorts of things. That has been um, an incredibly strong uh, element of, of the UK's soft power. There's no two ways about it, just as the English language is so powerful in a world context, so has the culture associated with the UK been really, really massive. Let me give an example. This is not about Europe, but the fact that I think I'm right saying Elton John is at the inauguration right now, that just shows how much of a cultural icon he is around the world. Today he's in the United States, but it's the same in France, the same in Spain, wherever. Um, now, with our performers not being able to perform so easily, there's a real danger, which is that if you're a running an event, which by the way, you have to plan in advance, as often as not well in advance, if you're running an event in Paris and you say, oh, it's such a faff getting these Brits here. Tell you what, let's use some German performers or some Italian or whatever. Then that habit might stick. Even when we get it sorted out, they say, well, actually, you know, and we could lose trade which is really, really damaging to the UK, the concept within, within a global uh, you know, stage, if you like. So that's one, one big worry. Also, a little, little sideline on this, it's actually, as a result of whatever's happened, and we'll try and find out what has happened, it's more difficult for them to take the instruments in because of things like rare metals and so on. That's bonkers too. The government said, oh, well, it's not as simple as that. You know, there are all the set crews and people like that. Well, hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah, but also you get solo pianists and solo cellists and so on, whatever. So it's not good. What have I done about it? I wrote to Oliver Dowden, who did, in fairness, say the door is open. And I said, I really would like a meeting with you with uh, musicians who I know what they're talking about, you know, proper meeting. And I then raised it in the Commons uh, in the beginning of this week. And luckily, uh, uh, the answer was yes, okay. We'll give you a meeting. So I'm doing everything I can. Meantime, other MPs are trying to find out what the heck's happened here. Yes, that will be of extraordinary interest, but at the end of the day, I've got to get moving about getting our musicians. Uh, and look, one last little point, which is this, is that during the pandemic, the arts, somebody playing the guitar, somebody singing in our opera, 
a band, whatever, um, somebody reading a music piece of poetry, the arts have actually kept us sane during the pandemic. We've seen all sorts of stuff happening, and it's very much to the credit of, of, of British cultural experts that we that it's helped so much. And it, you know, without them, life would have been an awful lot more rotten. And therefore, I think we have uh, a debt of gratitude to sort this out as, as far as humanly possible. Well, here, here, and it's great to know of a member of parliament that's speaking so articulately and also passionately for the cause for the arts. And, but as you say, it does sound like there's political will from Oliver Darden's side, which is encouraging. How long do you think this could take to resolve? Gosh, I hope it's really quick because um, it's not, you know, it's, it's, I've talked about the fact that we could lose markets in Europe, but also it's about livelihood. And let me give you an example of, and this is switching slightly to COVID, okay? Mm -hmm. But I, um, I chair the Gaps and Support uh, cross-party group, the APPG, which uh, is all about picking up people who have somehow been missed out on health, financial health during the pandemic. And I heard a really sad story directly from a cellist, a professional performer, who because of COVID couldn't perform. Um, okay, but she had to live in some way or another. She wasn't getting any money from playing a cello, so she's become a cleaner. I think I'm right in saying it's a school cleaner. But because of the hours she has to spend cleaning, she's not practicing her cello. Therefore, her, her, you know, her ability to perform is being impaired. And that is really, really worrying. Um, so linked with all this, I think we, we want to get things sorted out as, as soon as possible. I'm really, I think I'm going to expand the argument a little bit, which is, mm. you just said I do panto or didn't by the game of MP. And by the way, that was by act. I wasn't really supposed to become an MP. <laughs> My fellow pantomime uh, performers thought it was absolutely hilarious. That's down <laughs> then we all of us got a shock when I got elected. But the point is that um, I think it's actually, it's actually part of our way of life. And mm. when we talk to each other, we're talking to each other just now, that's communicating, but also you can communicate through uh, laughter through a beautiful piece of music, through a beautiful picture. So what I'm really saying is the arts are fundamental to our lives and our quality of lives. I, I certainly resonate with that and I'm sure lots of people listening will as well. I mean, I'd like to talk about COVID and funding more generally later, but uh, an M a Musicians Union survey highlighted the fact that 34% of musicians are considering leaving the industry and it's, and it's tragic. Um, so from the, the sound of things, it's unclear about how long this will take to resolve. This is the, the reciprocal arrangement of work permits for musicians. But is it also recognised that as part of our cultural uh, way of life, it's also having European musicians come to um, the UK as well to make sure that it is reciprocated? Is that something yeah. which is on the agenda? Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, you absolutely mentioned the reciprocal arrangement. That's exactly, that was what was so good until Brexit. It worked. You know, you could have a pianist, Andrea Schiff could come here and play. And you think about the Edinburgh Festival. The Edinburgh Festival, uh, you know, many, many a famous uh, name from Germany, France, from all over the world would come and perform. And that has been such a good thing uh, for, for not just for Edinburgh, but for, for Britain and all over. Um, so I'm really agreeing with you and saying it, it, it is horrific. And, you know, some of us, you have to, I get accused of being a Ramona. Well, sure, I warned about it and all that and so on. But now we begin to see things actually unraveling following the, the, the whatever they signed up to on the 25th, of, on the Christmas Eve. That's really, really worrying. We see, you know, fish stuff being, can't get abroad. Just, I understand meat is going on and we see the arts. So um, I am a convinced European and I'm going to digress slightly for one pretty strong reason, which is that my grandfather's two brothers, they were called Walter Stone and Arthur Stone, were both killed on the Western Front in, in, in the First World War. And you know, one thing about the EC, and this is a shameless advert for the, uh, for the EU, I mean, is that it's the longest period we've ever had since time began of peace in, in most of Europe. There's been, the, yes, there have been wars in the Balkans and so on, there's been ugly things, but within the, the European Union, there's been peace and there's been, as you say, about artists traveling around and we learn about each other's cultures. And that's so, so good. It's so, so good. I'm a, I'm a great believer in, in joining together. I'm, a, I'm a working together. I mean, I, I worked in Italy at one point while I was 
as a school teacher. And that was great. I loved it. And I learned so much about Italy and, and about Italian and all the rest of it. Well, absolutely. I think, um, well, just to finish off one thing on the, on the Brexit element was that it's, it's the frustration, I think, um, now I'm talking from my day job as I, I, I work in managing tours and helping to realise those orchestras, ballet companies, all sorts of different things. But the fact is that the that Brexit represents more bureaucracy, not less, which has been promised. And it's um, yeah, more regulations, more red tape, more cost. Um, and I suppose what's um, would be encouraging to know is that also that DCMS are aware of the fact that it's increased bureaucracy. And from the sound of things, I think it's what you were saying about carnets and other elements, which would just make it more challenging. Um, but picking up what you said about internationalism, that obviously is a very big key value of yours. And just to shift gears slightly, um, where do you stand on the a belief of international cultural exchange, which it sounds like you, you share, but also a balance between being climate conscious and our responsibility for the environment, particularly when you consider the UK is hosting COP26 later this year? You say to responsibility to the environment? Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, with people travelling about by air and all that, yeah, sure, there's, there's, if, if that's what you mean, there's mm. a problem there. But um, if you think about it, I'm a great railway man, and uh, railways that are powered by electricity are probably the greenest form of travel that, that's absolutely possible. And trains are getting faster and faster. We see some that are unbelievably quick. And, and I think that it is possible to balance it. Um, and I think that, you know, with electrical powered crossings of, you know, of, of seas to an extent can be done. There's a new ship that is going to use the Bernoulli effect, uh, which is why a golf ball swerves in flight. To, which is a clever sort of revolving sail, which, which is probably a very, very green way of crossing the Atlantic. Um, I think maybe that as a world society, we need to realize that in actual fact, uh, the ability to fly to America at some incredible speed, but spraying stuff out all over the upper atmosphere is perhaps not the best thing. But, you know, electrical powered aircraft could well be around the corner and battery technology is getting much, much cleverer all the time. I'm an optimist on that front, but I'm absolutely sure the, the cultural exchange is, is important. But also, I'm looking into an iPad, and that is where um, I think that with the, cult, with the technological revolution, that you can do very, very clever things. Um, mm. I had a, a Zoom meeting with some American students in, in Florida a couple of nights ago, and it was great fun, it really was. And it's when you do that, that you realize just the power of this, this, this this iPad in front of me is staggering. And by the way, um, you know, I think that things may well develop on that front. Uh, although having said that, nothing will ever replace, you know, he's getting very old now, but someone like Alfred Brendel coming to perform in Bristol or in London, or, or as I mentioned, Andrea Schiff already, or, or whoever, uh, because there is something magic about a live concert, which, can absolutely blow you away. I don't know if you're an opera buff, but yeah. well, okay. I was taken when I was a student in St. Andrews in my last weeks as a student, a mate of mine who subsequently became the musical agent said, right, you're going to come and see uh, De Meistersinger in Edinburgh uh, with uh, Dietrich Fischer discounted. And I didn't, I'd heard some Wagner overtures, but De Meistersinger blew me away. I couldn't believe it, what, uh, you know, the overture, even today, all that, that recurring theme stays with me. Um, the only mistake I was, in the first interval, I went and drank two pints of beer, which is a <laughs> major mistake. Uh, we, we won't go into that. Well, that's a top tip. Don't drink uh, two pints of beer in the interval of the <laughs> But, um, so it sounds to me that also you think, perhaps post-COVID, there'll be a renewed enthusiasm for the arts. I mean, because I completely agree with you and resonate with the fact that you can't beat the life experience. I, I, I agree, of course, it's great having these iPads of technological um, developments, but really, actually, still the idea of flying someone um, or traveling someone from abroad is still essential because that level of artistry, that visceral element you get from being in the opera, wherever it might be, is something which you just can't replace. That's exactly right. There's no two ways about it. Um, it also works two ways. In that I think that, and I, here I'm just going to revert to what I do myself. And bear in mind, I'm the crummiest amateur. But when I did pantomime, 
and you had 60 children on stage and you had the principal parts and, and latterly my last one, I was the dame and so on. And you got a community uh, and I have to be really careful the way I phrase this, but the children and the people involved in the pantomime in my local town here, well, wider, it's wider area. They came from all walks of life, really, really, really. And um, I don't want to be judgmental about jobs and what people do, but it really was, and it was a melting pot. And when you put a show on, and when you pull it off, even though it's a hammer full of rubbishy jokes and look behind and all that, and when you get a cheer and you bow at the end, you know the audience have loved it. Um, I don't actually know of a better hit to, to it's it's better than the finest wine. If you if you've pulled off a good performance, or you, you just played the flute superbly, and you bow, you know, you think, wow. And again, it's about human interaction, isn't it? The audience have loved it, mm. the performers have loved it. And I always think that when you when you get into the arts, you can get totally bitten. And it, I suppose it's as I said earlier, it's about human nature, isn't it? Mm. It's coded into us. It's probably the same reason that birds sing to each other. And, and, and you can tell when birds are enjoying it. I, mean, I, I listen to pigeons in the morning. They have that in conversation. <laughs> cool way. Well, you can find the arts in many different ways, I'm sure, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to go back to something which you said earlier, which I found quite intriguing, was you talked about, um, again, this is linking to internationalism, but the, the importance of the arts as a soft power. Um, do you think that... Um, we're perhaps losing our standing in the world in that respect with having barriers to developing international cultural exchange, such as what's happening, say, with Brexit. Um, and can London still conceivably claim not to be London-centric necessarily as a, as a capital of, of culture for the world? Maybe Simon Rattle moving from the LSO to Bavarian Radio Orchestra is anticipating our decline. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I completely agree. I think it's a very, very real danger. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I'm not sure that the government actually sees this. Um, and it's funny because the, 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 it's, it's not a new thing. The British influence has been very big for a long time. I mean, look at the way Shakespeare has been translated and interpreted by composers uh, since, you know, for, for many, many years. We can all think of, you know, various renditions of Macbeth or whatever and so on. Um, so it is dangerous and I worry about people moving, uh, going away. And you know, when Neil McGregor, why he moved from um, London to Berlin is a worry. And you worry about this. Um, and I don't know how to stop it. I don't know how to stop it. I think the best I can do is bang on about it. Um, and also I've got to be very careful that I don't get too highbrow and talk about Bach's chromatic fantasy and fugue or the Chacon, you know, the famous Chacon. I've got to talk about Panto. I've got to talk about brass bands. I've got to talk about, you know, pub quizzes because mm. arts comes in so many different forms. But what are arts all about? The arts are all about, and I'm repeating myself, it's about making people feel happier. You, get, you, you enjoy art because you enjoy art. You say, oh, that's a lovely picture. And you look at it longer and gosh, that's beautiful. Gosh, it's a nice piece of music. Goodness me, that's a funny joke. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Just within the artist community, we, we are certainly, fee our feeling is that we hope to be an important part of the, of the recovery post-COVID and to boost morale and to have those visceral feelings we were talking about earlier, which just can't be replaced, unfortunately, by interactions such as this. But um, so is there any way... And maybe it's the case of how the arts is valued within our, by this government, within, within, within our country. Is there any way of regaining that power? And as you say, maybe it's an economic argument demonstrating that soft power links to trade. Well, I think first up, I think what government should think about, and it's quite good value for money, is once we get through all this, and once we've had enough injections to make have some semblance of normal life, then I think there's a huge benefit in saying, right, here is a chunk of money for Bristol or for West Oxfordshire or for the Highlands of Scotland or whatever. Go out there, have an arts festival, okay? Make it, don't, not too highbrow, make it a bit of everything, okay? But there it is, spend that money on performers, spend that money on venues, let's get things going and let's kick start. Let's get the WRVS to help 
do the teas. Let's get, I don't know, um, any, you know, and let's, by the way, there's a very good quartet from uh, Slovakia. Let's get them in, they're good. Let's, and there's a lot of knowledge out there. Let's invite Neil McGregor to come back, you know, from Berlin and do perhaps, he's done a hundred objects, he's done a hundred and first one. It's come and do the hundred and second one. We challenge you to come to Caithness, to come to Truro, do a hundred and second object. Uh, and tell us all about it. Um, Simon Raffle, please come back and conduct something for us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's what I do. And I hope Oliver Dowden considers that because in the scheme of things, when they can throw, you know, gosh, doesn't it make you wonder what austerity was all about? But that's a complete aside. That, you know, 500 million, goodness me, what couldn't you do with 100 million in terms mm. of arts festivals all over the UK? Why don't we have a summer of arts festivals? to re-kick, to say, hey, we've got through the pandemic. Hey, let's enjoy life. And the thing is, when you spend that money, instead of spending it on benefits, you're spending it, putting it into people's pockets, you're putting it, it, the money's spent locally in pubs, it's spent in businesses, it goes straight into the economy. This time through an arts pipeline, that's something I'd like to push really hard. Yeah, and I think I certainly, um policy of that nature would be really encouraging as you say not only does it go straight into the artists into the economy but then there's that on ticket sales there's the wider economy as well I mean there's a, a figure here of the arts and culture contribute 10.8 billion a year to the UK economy and the and the sector contributes 2.8 billion a year in to treasury taxation that's not including tourism hospitality yes. all the other elements mm. that go about it it's a very strong argument there. And Sam Mendes, for example, last year, the director was um, championing the film industry and theatre and saying he's not asking for um, simply a handout, it's an investment. When you think about investing in local regional theatre, those actors, Daniel Craig, Ralph Fiennes and Dame Judi Dench didn't just turn out of nowhere and do the James Bond films. They were mm -hmm. at those regional theatres building up their career mm -hmm. to what they are today. And the the revenue we get from using London for, for films, whatever it might be, is, is, is considerable. Mm. I, had a, I had a very funny meeting with um, with Netflix, doing oh, yeah. a GC it, and they would, they would tell me all the good things they do and so on. Channel 4 do the same, BBC do the same, absolutely understandable. And uh, they said, uh, you know, and they'd obviously done the research, they knew I represented the top of Scotland. And they said, we're terribly sorry, uh, we've done an awful lot in the UK filming The Crown. You said, I said, oh yes, I know about The Crown, but we haven't filmed them in the space, they haven't actually filmed them in your area. And I said, we'll say, oh yes, you have, because the first episode of the third series was filmed in the village of Limestone, the village of Dunbeath and Caithness. And, and by the way, Lord Mountbatten was blown up in Limestone, not in the West of Ireland. And they, oh, did we? Did we? Oh gosh. And I was able to say, turn it to your point, and you wouldn't believe what that did for the local B&B, because having you guys descend, spend your money, go in the B&B, oh, we better go have a pint in the pub and so That was a really, not, not big in the scheme of things, but in a tiny little village like Livester, bloody good news. And the locals loved it. They were thrilled that they were going yeah. to be in the car, you know? I'm sure. Well, I think it's coming back to the point about perhaps how, not necessarily the government, but also, um, UK more broadly, how they value culture. I mean, the German government, for example, gives more to Berlin arts organisations alone and the whole of Arts Council England is able to distribute to all the arts organisations in England. So that's quite a stark contrast. And does that demonstrate how we value culture? And is it is constantly diminishing? Or, or do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I'm a very strange nation, you know. When Handel came over to write, um, uh, in, in the 18th century. I think he made the observation that um, they're funny lot the English, he said. Uh, they really like loud, clangy, bang, bang type music, you know, which is sort of slightly true about us Brits, um, which is why, you know, the last night of the proms. Uh, and whereas, you know, um, there's a famous cartoon, I think, uh, the, um, I don't remember who did it, of a German audience looking at a quartet and going, oh, that is good job. And a British audience watching a quartet, you know, and they're sound asleep. Um, so we've got to guard against that. And I think we're funny about culture and the arts because we think it's sort of slightly not, it's not roast beef, it's not quite proper. I think that's a danger in that. And I think, although, and yet, once you get the stuff going, we love it. We absolutely love it. So I think we've got to be more open about 
how important the arts are to our lives and, and say what I've just said about how it's part of happiness. But also we've got to get the government uh, to understand this. I think Oliver Dowd in the Secretary of State is, he, I think he does get it. Um, the rumor is that he may be promoted to, to you know, a slightly more important, although I don't, that's to denigrate the arts to say that, but he, we may lose him. But then there are, and it's not very fair to say this, but there are some people in, in all parties who are really are not supporters of the arts. Uh, and that's a, that's a great shame. Um, you know, the, uh, what do we do? We ju as I said before, we just got to bang the drum and go on about it. And, and in, in my going on about it, I've got to, uh, you know, I, I've got to look not too, to use an expression, not too highbrow. I've said that already, yeah. but, um, and, it, it, and just getting things to happen. I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago when I was in the Scottish Parliament, uh, we have a very successful uh, traditional Scottish folk music, not folk music, uh, Scottish music, uh, based on, on my old school, Tain Academy, which is called the Gizen Briggs. That's named after, the Gizen Briggs named after a, a particularly treacherous bit of, of sand just off the coast here. And they are really, really good. They're absolutely fantastic. They play beautiful Highland airs and Strathspeys and Jigs and Reels and so on. And they're hugely successful around here. Um, and I thought, right, now, now in the Scottish Parliament, if I do nothing else, I was on the committee that oversaw the building department, and I took a lot of flack. In fact, in fact, I nearly lost my seat. So when it was all finished and they had the opening with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh to come and do it, I went to the signing officer, who's David Seale, and said, I want my local band, these children, old at school, to come play, because they play beautifully. And I sent him a recording, and he said, they do play well. And I said, okay, no, it's not possible. And I said, now look here, I've been through hell. I nearly lost my seat. My price. So anyway, I got them in. And, and they went down an absolute smash hit. It was really good. And the Queen walked past and stopped and listened to them and said, what's that you just played? And they said, oh, it's a slow air called Leaving Stoa. Stoa's Northwest Highlands, little village. And she said, would you play it again? Oh, um, wow. I know. And that they now call the Royal Request. <laughs> so, so why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this that if you if you get them out there and get them performing, um, or if you you know let's do something quick. If you get a, a a steel band to come across from the Caribbean and put them in Aberdeen in the middle of the street when it's not raining, and and they start playing, people go, wow, hey, that's cool. It's about having the bottle to put the performance on, and you'd be surprised how people react. Well, I would actually, I would say to that, in terms of the bottle, there's also the risk involved in putting things on. And you mentioned, how about, you know, this, um, distributing local and regional funding or support festivals. Um, I'd like to talk about sort of the long term, long to medium term in a minute, but in the short term, um, within your DCMS remit as spokesperson, it's also sport as well. Now, how can Premier League football matches happen, whereas Concert halls, a controlled environment. In fact, there was a there was a study in Germany at the Concert House in Dortmund only only came out last week that said concert venues are not places for infection. How can football happen, but concerts in a controlled environment can't? Is it just simply that money talks? Yeah, I think I think it's a certain amount of that. Um, there's also this issue one we we've been pursuing. I don't, you probably don't know this, but through the the APPG. Um, and also through my DCMS team in the Lords, as well as myself, we've been pursuing the idea of insurance. Because, yes, I was going to ask about um, that. Yeah. You know, I, I was approached directly by the son of a friend of mine who, uh, said, who works in, for promoting music. And he said, look, we can't get insurance cover. And, and yet the government can underwrite the insurance and can actually do quite well out of it, can make a few bob. And if you set a date, a start date, an assumed safe date to start, perhaps if you said, I don't know, 1st of July, I think, I can't remember that's the date we thought we'd try it. And to try and push that, say, come on, you do underwrite insurance for other things. So why not do it for music? And that is work in progress. Um, I, I, hope, I hope we can persuade them to do that. Because I think if we got that right, we could really start to unlock things. Um, yeah, it was something which was, um, it was on the radio over the weekend about that very thing. And I gather that Germany, Austria, Switzerland have had similar models of, of government-backed insurance identity schemes. And I gather the film industry, the UK government, there's already a precedence there for doing that. So hopefully, as you say, it'll be realised with live performance. The likes of Glastonbury, I've never been championing it and, and others. So mm. is, is, there a, is there a timeline on that? Um, I'm trying to remember where we got to. I think... Uh... 
I think what we've done is we have written to GCMS, or is it the Treasury? Anyway, it happened last week. So we've put forward a proposal saying we think this is what should be done. Um, and it's, it's a pretty hot topic of discussion. I have to also pay tribute to Jane Bonham Carter in, in the Lords, who's been a big help with this one. And, and she, she gets the arts in particular and so on. Um, and actually, you know, not on this particular one, but in other forms of support for people who, who've lost out during the pandemic, um, we have been quite lucky in that we have now uh, actually got Jesse Norman, who's not the Chancellor's Exchequer, he's one down, but he as a minister is now actually meeting with us and saying, look, if you can come up with costed proposals to, as to how you know, we could reach out to people who missed out and how it will be uh, safe from fraud, then I'm very happy to put my Treasury officials on to it to think about it. And we have just literally made uh, the first of those proposals. This is not on the insurance of, any, of performances. But what I'm saying is that we've started the dialogue there on a sort of parallel front. And I think the, the aim is to do the same with the insurance uh, issue. I'm pretty certain in my mind that that would break the logjam. That's really encouraging. Um, I think in some ways we could look at, say, let's talk about the Cultural Recovery Fund in terms of um, that, when that first came out, the 1.57 billion as a headline, extremely generous. I suppose when you compare it to uh, Transport for London having a six month bailout of 1.8 billion, maybe not quite so much. But um, what seems contradictory, I mean, Classical Music Magazine put out uh, a survey and it was released last week that said only 20% of, of the arts um, feel that the distribution of it has actually been very fair. There was a big pomp and circumstance at the beginning about how Oliver Downing saying we should protect the crown jewels, but many of which actually are having to sell off their assets, like the Royal Opera House selling um, the Hockley painting um, before they can actually receive any subsidy. And there's lots of people, well, organisations more generally, but also individual musicians um, who are freelance self-employed who are just slipping through the net. And so yeah. your conversations with the Treasury, then does that imply that they're very much aware of that and trying to resolve that? Yes, yes. The freelance one is exactly where one of the issues we've come straight out of them on it and say by the very definition of the way they work, they haven't been furloughed, they haven't received anything at all, and they're having to flog the car to, 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 to live. Um, and yes, that, that, that's, that's in the proposal we made, this freelance in particular, which of course covers, you know, obviously all sorts of freelancers, but the musicians are in there, and some of the most compelling evidence, as I said before, came from the musicians, like my cellist who's having to clean the school. Um, and uh, it, it is the erosion of the product, which is so dangerous. And, uh, you know, if, if, if we reduce in any way the quality of what we're doing. And again, I just take you back, you know, why should they have to sell a hockey? Because um, the money you give the arts is spent in the economy of the UK. Uh, or, or the vast proportion of it is. Yes, okay, some will go overseas, but then overseas come here and they raise money here. So, you know, that was the reciprocal nature of it. They could be paid in the country they went to without a problem. And um, I think, oddly enough, it's may seem digress slightly. I think that I'm not without hope. I think in the government, I think, oddly enough, Michael Gove, from my conversation with him, gets this one. Um, he's quite a thoughtful guy, actually. And, and it may be that he appreciates that there are others who I don't think get it at all. But so the way I run it is the APPG on the gaps of support. I was very gratified that I got uh, all sorts of MPs from all sorts of parties joining. Esther McVeigh, former cabinet minister, is a, a joint chair with me. And the reason I think we can advance it is if you try and not get too partisan political, but show that we're all working together in different parties to try and, and, you know, advance this. And I think the same, if we get it right, can be done with the arts. I mean, if you take, um, you take Giles Watling, the Tory MP for uh, the coast of Essex, I'm trying to remember the name, is Clacton. And he is an ex-actor. Uh, oh, right. Tracy Braben, ex Labour, ex-actress, uh, or actor, I should say, we don't have actresses anymore, or whatever. And um, they, they can talk on the same language about mm. it. And Giles has been doing good work about saying, well, hang on, maybe theatre's in danger. And, you know, and so if we work on a broad front, and try and be able to show that we're, we're for the, the wider good. That I think can be a message for government. Well, it's great to hear there's a cross-party consensus there and a working body in order to champion the arts. I mean, would you say, 
just going back to the cultural recovery fund, do you, would you say that's been successful? Would you say the furlough scheme has been successful for the arts? When you consider the South Bank Centre have had, unfortunately, had to let go seventy percent of its staff. The, I don't know. The, the, in this last summer, I was hearing about the Theatre Royal in Plymouth, which is a regional venue, fantastic commissioning venue, has, has got rid of all of its artistic team, and it, that's tragic. Mm. I mean, it's always going to be things that stick for the net. But overall, would you say it's been successful? Yeah. I've, okay. Well, f first up, I'm not going to slag off the furlough scheme because that you know that has saved a lot of lives. But uh, in terms of impact on the arts, no. I think I think I think there's been a I think there's been a, a missed opportunity here. Um, in all our discussions with Treasury, I think we're good, we have to rather sand accept the fact that we can't get things back dated. But if we can sort out the freelance problem, at least it would now. I mean, they've had almost a year of this, you know. Um, don't need to tell you that. Uh, but yes, I think it, it 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 is it's it's extraordinary the way it's been missed out and. I don't quite understand why or how that ever came to be. And, and as you rightly say, Germany takes such a very different attitude. Um, maybe it's no accident they produce so many great composers. Uh, I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, we've got to put it right. It's as simple as that. Okay, thank you. Well, I um, just to move on slightly, and it, I suppose it does link to, to the funding for arts organizations is that within this environment of actually just having such a challenging funding environment at the moment. Do you feel that perhaps pre-COVID commitments to diversity inclusivity initiatives from arts organisations are perhaps might be neglected and that also linking to um, learning and participation activities and music education. Is, is there a danger that those really fundamental elements for the future of our industry um, yeah. Yeah. are being neglected at all and how, what can we do to combat that? Yeah, I think there is danger. And let me give you one example, uh, which is that um, I'm very worried about with, uh, of course, you know, schools can't operate in normal way. But what does that mean for people picking up the violin for the first time? Uh, what, you know, what does it mean for the, the, the very basics of starting in the school orchestra? Probably as Nicola Benedetti did. I, I, I met, you know, she probably, she probably would have been taught earlier than that. But that's the way I came to music was actually to avoid playing football because I was such rubbish. I discovered that Miss McRae could do violin lessons on the very period that clashed with football. So I then learned to play the fiddle for that reason, which is not the best reason. And I wasn't a particularly good fiddler, but I did lead the seconds in the end, but never mind. <laughs> so, uh, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a principle in Scottish schools for many, many years that musical instruction would be free, wouldn't be charged for. And the, the real worry as you know, budgets go completely wonky and cash becomes short. It's, it's a bit like selling, you know, the Hockney. But then, you know, who knows? They might charge, start to charge for instrumental in instruction. That would then instantly, you know, mean that a whole lot of kids, because their parents can't afford it, would lose out. And just give you one other odd example. I've done many different jobs in my time. I worked in uh, in the Shetlands as a kitchen porter, which is the lowest of the low, when I was a student. And there was a guy who was a cleaner. Uh, and he was called Dave Berry, he was an old bloke. And that was me being a kitchen porter, being shouted out by the chefs. There was Dave with his mop and his bucket going on cleaning. Dave could whistle, he could whistle like you had never heard. And I, being in some classmates, said, I bet you, can you whistle the theme from, you know, whatever, and he could. And he thinks, sure, I don't believe this, you know. Death and the Maiden, wow! He'd never ever, he couldn't read music, uh, but, and you thought, what a talent, what a shame. He should have played the flute. And yet, obviously, from his background, he'd never had that opportunity. He was an old bloke then, and I'm talking way, way back. And he thought, what a tragedy. So I'm a great believer in everybody should attain their maximum potential. And I think that musical instruction is, I'm digressing again, I'm an awful man. For oh, no, time. it's absolutely fine. But I think that's part and parcel. And so I think that the sacred uh, rule of equal access to developing the arts could be in danger as a result of COVID um, because budgets are going to be so hellish. Yeah, and I think there's, there's maybe a, I don't want to generalize the arts community more broadly, but there's perhaps a danger that um, arts organizations are really leading the front in providing a music provision. Um, and, and also without it being a real focus in the curriculum and that's led by government policy and actually feels that perhaps the arts are 
isolated in that. Mm. And um, what can we do to get more support and more consensus with within the curriculum that, that to demonstrate that the arts is, is really important? I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra are starting up a school. Um, I think next academic year is academy where every single pupil will be given free music tuition and they hope to demonstrate in four to five years time actually there's measurable difference in the academic um, performance by virtue of having uh, music tuition and hopefully there's some measurable data then to demonstrate yes. that, that point. Yes. yes, I think that this is a huge part of it. you're absolutely right about that. And um, that was when I was a counsellor donkey's years ago, that was one of the arguments I used to always deploy about why we must maintain free instrument construction, was it did lead to a, a parallel improvement in other, sub, in other subjects. Quite why that is, it's very hard to know, isn't it? It's just the way the human brain works, I guess. Um, they do say, actually, oddly enough, within the Highlands of Scottish, Scotland context, that if you learn Gaelic in a Gaelic medium school, that improves attainment. So maybe it's the the mind exercise. And you know how people of my age are strongly advised to do this, the crossword, do the Sudoku, otherwise you'll, you know, you'll lose all your faculties, you know. And no, I think there's something about that. Mental exercise keeps you, you know, keeps you going. Mm. I'm, I'm also shifting gears all over the place, so we're both at it. But I want to talk about um, culture wars today. And is it fair to say the BBC is perhaps marginalized to a certain extent by the current government is there with the accusations of maybe a left-wing bias is there danger of there being no longer any political independence for the bbc with for example richard sharp about a tory donor about to be appointed as bbc chairman um is there any danger of of the uh, as i say the political in, in independence of the bbc or do you do you have any or do you have any concerns about that at all uh, you've touched a raw nerve there yes i think it's a huge danger um, absolutely. Uh, and this is something that I talk about a lot with, with my colleagues, the peers, and, and Jane Bonham is really, really big in it. Look, the BBC is one of the great institutions, and I've got an excellent uh, uh, new person working for me, Mohammed, and we gave Mohammed only at the end of last week. I said, right, Mohammed, your project is this, is to look at the BBC, spend, spend as much time as you can on it, work out what were the great benefits of the BBC, Let's you know, write something on it. Let's work towards a blog, maybe a piece in the House magazine. Um, and I was saying, here's a couple of steers. Uh, in the uh, 1926 general strike, uh, Lord Reith became under huge pressure, I mean, I've studied history, from the government, uh, Baldwin's government, but in particular from Winston Churchill, uh, to bloody well, you know, hammer these miners, sort it out, you know, he was publishing something, Churchill was, called the British Gazette, which was a real rag, which was to smash the units. So, you know, he may be in the great save in the Second World War, but there's, there's a past in Winston's life as well. Mm. And Lord Reith, to complete credit, said, no, I will not do this. The, the BBC is independent. We will not go one way for the government or one way or the other or whatever. And he was really unpopular. Uh, with in this on this occasion with the Conservative Party, but let's also remember that there were times when Tony Blair's government were absolutely furious with the BBC, particularly at the time of Iraq, particularly at the time of Doctor Doctor Kelly, I think that was his name, wasn't it? Committed suicide, and the independence of the BBC is absolutely colossally important. Um, and uh, and then I said to Mohammed, the other example is think during the Second World War, how. You know, how the BBC helped keep the nation together. And I said, think too about, you know, have a look at um, the Foreign Service, you know, and I, I mean, the, you know, at soft power. And then I said, finally, we should take a really close look at what the BBC has been doing during COVID in terms of schedules that keep, you know, the morale of the country up when people have been in a pretty black place. So we're developing an argument, points out that it's fundamental, auntie, the beep, is fundamental to the way we do things in Britain. It's like National Health Service, it's something that's really important. Um, and I think the some of the proposals emanating from the Tory party as to how they're gonna sort them out are very, very, very worrying indeed. And um, it's that side, I'm not saying every Tory is a bad person because there are good Tories, there are good people in every party, but that tendency is an ugly one. And we have to, it has to be avoided at all costs, but the attack is there. And they would love to pull one over the BBC and to emasculate them. And I think it's 
colossally important that that's defended. I mean, I, I think that, you know, where you see, and it, you know, even in the Scottish context, the BBC attack, as you probably well know, in that Alex Salmond became convinced that the BBC was out to stuff Scottish independence. I don't think so. I would say their reporting was straight down the middle dead fair. I mean, I, I've been given a really hard time, in, and I deserved it, on when I've been interviewed on in the past. I've made big mistakes. And, um, you know, uh, I, I can think of BBC names who've really, oh, God, got Jamie now. Right, <laughs> bang! Go for him. Uh, but I deserved it. I'm a politician, you know. You, if you can't take that stuff. But no, they were fair. They were fair. I don't want to demonstrate too much bias here, but I think the BBC is also the same broadcaster that had Nick Griffin on Question Time. And to say it's got a left-leaning bias, it gave Nigel Farage a huge platform during Brexit when, uh, and before that when UKIP had no members of parliament. I can't think of another political party that had the same coverage that he did with, us, yeah. with no MPs. Um, yeah. So it's, I suppose the danger, and it sounds like it's a very real danger from what you're saying, is the erosion of the BBC's maybe public service ethos and more commercialisation is also perhaps there as well. And, and also more broadly within the media landscape, the launch of GB News with a right-leaning or almost Fox News style from what's been anticipated um, broadcast, 24-hour news broadcaster, which might make our country even more divided. Is that another sort of danger? Yes, it's absolutely, absolutely true. No, no, you can see that. And, and there's, a, there's a, a gentleman living in Australia, a very old man, who, uh, you know, I won't name him, I can't remember his name. <laughs> might sound like Bupert Kurdoch, but never mind. Um, has he got so, anything Scottish yeah, about it? And I think you, these things have to be guarded as being absolutely precious to Britain. Um, and if nothing else as a country, I think we have, do have a proud record for even hundreds of years of being fair-minded. I mean, after mm. all, we, it, was, it was the UK, for whatever statues have been pushed in the sea of slave, slave people, it was the UK that actually eventually said, actually, we're going to ban the slave trade. And we did do that. And you know, that course. bit of history can't be taken away. It was Britain who said, no, no, hang on. Hitler's, wait, what, this guy? He's out of order, you know, invading Poland. So let's not be ashamed of it, but it's all about the sort of fairness and that quality of decency and, and Churchill raging when he was put out in 1945, but actually recognizing that, well, that's democracy, isn't it? And how, how that compares to recent events on the other side of the pond. Well, in fact, that's, a, that's an interesting segue because today we are talking on the day of Joe Biden's inauguration. And I just wanted to talk to you briefly about cancel culture. And so Trump has been banned from Twitter, from all sorts of different uh, social media platforms. Where, where do you stand on perhaps on the debate of free speech versus also the power of these independent social media companies? And are they publishers? Do they have the uh, um, right to be stopping Trump from broadcasting wherever he wants to I know, broadcast. I know, that, that is one of the most fascinating questions of the last few days, you know, and people saying, well, hang on, just shut up, shut down the President of the United States. What is this? I personally think, I should be very interested to see what the government's about to come forward with on, on online harms. I think this is colossally important. Already the lobbying started. And um, you, know, um, you wonder, is Nick Clegg suddenly going to appear I, Jamie, I, I don't know you, but could I have a word with you? Is he COO <laughs> of Facebook, is that right? Or C, or deputy CEO or something like I that? I don't know. I, um... He's definitely uh, a senior figure. Well, I know, I, have I time? Am I holding you back? No, no, please, please carry on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember very well when I was a great friend of Charles Kennedy's. This is, I, I'll come back to the subject, okay? But I remember um, I had been his chairman and um, we were chums. I was a member of Scottish Parliament. He was, and when he died, uh, the media sort of went, ITV, uh, BBC, they, they interviewed me, absolutely. And I did telly and what was he like and so on. And that was fine and so on. And then they, the BBC said, Willie, can we interview you uh, just before the funeral? And being Highland, I said, no, no, no that's not appropriate. I'm, I'm not going to, not, not the day of funeral. I'm not going to do that. Sorry, can't do it. And they were a bit, uh. And so after the funeral, um, there's Nick Clegg. It was decent for him to turn up. So I went up to him and said, um, uh, you don't know me, I'm Jamie Stone. And, uh, and he said, I know exactly who you are. And turned his back on me. Ooh, crikey, what's this? Uh. 
And then Alistair Campbell, of all people, came up and said, oh, Jamie, we haven't met Alistair Campbell. I was going, oh, how do you know who I am? He said, I heard you were good. I heard you this morning on the radio. Excellent. I didn't do radio. And then another person, oh, I heard you on the radio. Good. I said, what is this? So eventually, after a day or two of this, I rang up with these. He said, look here, I didn't do an interview. Ah, uh, no, no, no. But uh, we broadcast <laughs> it. I said, what, what do you mean? Well, we said, well, we, we, we used a bit of an outtake that you did for the telly. We turned it into radio. And we put that out. It went down quite well. I said, which bit did you use? And I said, ah, oh, the bit where you had said you'd, you'd been having a cup of tea with Charles and you'd, you'd both been talking about the bedroom tax and saying it was absolutely rubbish, it was iniquitous, and that Charles, yes, was going to vote against it. And Nick had heard this driving the funeral and was clearly absolutely furious with me for having mentioned it. Well, wasn't Charles Kennedy also one of the few Lib Dem MPs who opposed the coalition as well? Yes, did he? Yeah. yeah. So well, I was complete, that's completely just an anecdote, but so yeah. Nick was, I was on his radar, all right? Public enemy <laughs> number one, you know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that um, we'll see what comes out of online harms. We'll see what the government comes up with. Sorry, could you dig a bit the online harms? What does that refer to exactly? Well, this, this is just controlling just what you're talking about. I mean, okay. you know, can this the is it the new statesman or is the times had a picture of the dome of the capital being mm -hmm. held up by twitter facebook no, 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 all the way around see and it's about are these guys too powerful and and that's what you're talking about yeah, yeah. so the fear is that they may use very clever um you know behind the scenes lobbying of minister sessions or right, just leave it whereas i think some of us feel that no, it's not all right when you can, you know, kids can access stuff that they shouldn't be up to. That maybe the government in France will come and follow the regulatory regime. We'll see what, what that comes up with. My own view is that the way to do it and shutting down, I think the part of the time probably had come to shut Trump down. But I think that long before, there should have been more warnings associated with the tweet, more warnings with the Facebook post saying, this is not, you know, th th there are facts that can, absolutely. And, you know, had that been done with, uh, what's it called, QAnon, a lot more. Mm. Um, oh, you know, let's be quite fair about this. I make a speech, it's pretty dodgy. Um, Twitter might say, well, that's Jamie's opinion, but, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So mm. I think that the sort of health warning thing should be better put. Um, but, I, but I'm not sure. I, I, I look, I'm not pretend to be an expert in this. I would be very interested to see what other people suggest. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, and in Twitter's defence, I think they they did give warnings or started to retract some of his yes. tweets and all that yes. sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a well, it's one of the debates of our time, I would say. Hmm. Um, there's the there just the other slight aspect of social media, which is worth remembering, is that. Also, however, because people can take screenshots, um, you can catch people on social media. You know, you can catch your baddie. <laughs> and I think some of the guys that the FBI are rounding up right now for breaking into, into, into capital, it, the social media stuff is, is crucial to that. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, as a segue, digital more generally, do, do you, and I'm going to bring it back to the arts again more closely, is that, do you think... Um, technology will influence the arts and, and vice versa. I know we spoke a little bit, say, about Zoom, but just more broadly. And, and, and actually, did we have anything to worry about with the likes of Huawei or with AI technology um, replacing jobs or whatever it might be in, in the future? Or is it something we should very much be embracing? No, we do, we do, we do have to be careful. Um, of course, Huawei takes me it's not, this is not really our topic for today, but it takes me into the national security. It, there is no doubt that the Chinese are buying up um, an awful lot of stuff, uh, which is not, not really what we want. And um, so I think we have to be careful, but, but on technology, there is this one great potential, which is that I'm, as I said, I'm on my iPad talking to you. If I, uh, as an MP, have to get in touch with the government departments, which we do all the time, as likely as not, they're at home because of COVID and they're working through, which kind of proves the argument that you could decentralize an awful lot of 
jobs out of the big conurbations to uh, to someone like where I represent. I mean, why would you not um, have mm. some aspects of advice uh, done from the far north of Scotland? Uh, providing, and the connectivity is reaching that point where it's good enough to do that, or very nearly now. So there's an opportunity to restructure the way we work. Um, and my son uh, works in, 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 in finance, and he's been working from his home in, in East London. And I think there's going to, they have to reach a point as a, as a company to say, well, we don't need to have such a big office, do we? We could do a lot smaller. Mm. And we could then do an awful lot of people, you know, providing this human contact when we meet in some way. Uh, but we don't need to have X people in the same building. But then that then dislocates the market. You find property becoming empty. Uh, you know, you could find big offices becoming empty. Then we'd have to have a sort of policy of, of moving people in. But but to go back to the arts, mm. I think that the I think the quality of digital uh, transmission of um, to go back to you know Angela Hewitt playing the one piano. of our artists. One of our artists um, is fantastic, and you know I can now if I'm if I'm in a really boring meeting, okay, I can just you know put Angela Hewitt on the headphones and just nod wisely at what my colleagues are saying. But actually, I'm you know I'm listening to the Bersoni transcription of the Tikalia. I don't know if you're a pianist or an organist. I'm not. No, I'm not. No, that's a good tip though. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's, it's great. And, you know, okay, it's not stereo, but it's very nearly stereo, because, mm. you know, um, and it's not far away at all. So there's a great opportunity, but but then we've got to also get people into listening to the music much, yeah. much more. Absolutely. Um, just to, to, to finish off, this is um, not arts related, but just it does have actually repercussions, say, when we're thinking about touring to Japan, actually, in, in the very, hopefully, to the near future, and within your remit of sports within DCMS. Um, do you think the Olympics will happen? I mean, today the Times suggested not. Hugh, so Hugh Robertson, the chairman of the British Olympic Association, was quite vehement on the Today programme to, today, saying it would definitely go ahead. Um, there's no, doesn't seem to be any conclusive element, but I would well, see. I think I think it's the job of everyone to sort of say yeah, it'll definitely go ahead, um, and that's what he's doing. Just as Nicola Sturgeon saying there'll definitely be a Scottish election in May. Just as Boris is saying, there'll definitely be local elections in England and Wales in May. Um, just as they tend to do that, don't they? But I've been saying to my Scottish Liberal Democrat leader, Willie Rennie, that if we hit the end of January uh, with COVID still as bad as it is at the moment, or not much better, then let's, you know, if you're a betting man, it's not so likely we'll have a, an election at the beginning of May. Um, why am I telling you that? I can understand why you've got to try and present the most optimistic picture and and you can't go around saying it's all death and disaster. But I think being realistic, I think I think the Olympics are in jeopardy. I think let's hope they happen, but I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah. Um Wow. Thank you for your time. I one thing I wanted to mention also is that our director co-founder Jasper Parrott is a big advocate for the book by Peter Wolleben called The Hidden Life of Trees. I don't know if you recommend, I'm coming full circle with your gardening hobby here. Um, I don't know if you know it, but he, um, Jasper has been sort of uh, waxing lyrical about the book and also he is amazing about the sort of infinite and oft often invisible interlocking of, um, of, of trees and fungi and actually how the arts in our society perhaps has a similar role um, so anyway, I thought I'd throw in that book recommendation and uh, oh, uh, I think it's true, and um, it's really weird the, uh, the way that things you did or I've done in the past in the arts suddenly comes full circle. Um, and somebody said to me the other day, "Wait a minute, if I remember right, it's St Andrews. Weren't you in Endgame?" And I said, "Oh God, this you know Endgame by Samuel Beckett." And a mate of mine and I on a Sunday were having a pint and we were walking down North Street in Standish. There was a sign that said, auditions now. And this mate said, oh, yeah, these arty people, they paint their fingernails all a bit weird. And we were half cut. So we went in and did the audition for a lark, you know, just two lads. And I got a part. 
And that, that launched me on the stage at St. Andrew's University as an amateur actor, but I loved it. And um, it's funny that it should come back to bite me all these years later. Uh, really, really weird. Yeah. Hey, can I show you something? Yes, please do. Did, did you hear that noise? I did, yeah. It's Trump. <laughs> Don't touch the hair. There you go. <laughs> wow, Jamie. Many thanks indeed for your time. As I say, it's been it's great to have someone who speaks so passionately for the arts, and to know that you're working in many different areas to improve the lives of artists and arts organisations more broadly. Um, thank you also to Aisha Hassan, Fiona Livingston, and our sound editor Merlin Thomas. Our theme music is composed by Robert Cochran. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out all the other episodes from The Culture Bar with topics ranging from art sponsorship to the future of music technology and international cultural exchange. We've had guests from the BBC, the British Museum, and even a former football professional reverie. And to get all of that and more, please subscribe. See you next time.